Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. Today we're bringing you the story of the Duberalt family. I'm not very familiar with this one, so let's get to it. to another round of bartending with Sloan. Today we are stepping outside of our comfort zone just a little bit. Just, just a little a bit. Little. We are going to do a mezcal tequila, which we have not done yet. And if you haven't had mezcal, it is, to me, the way that I describe it to people is that it is like a bourbon's take on tequila. Like that smoky flavor it's that you get in a lot of. like, yeah, it's. It's just, it's a, it's like a dark liquor take on tequila. Yeah. Would be the better way of putting it. That's how my taste buds interpret it. Like my mouth is like, oh, hey, this is tequila. But it also seems like somebody put a little bit of dark whiskey or bourbon or scotch or something in the drink too. Yeah. When done correctly, I thoroughly enjoy this. It's not like regular tequila where, you know, I can just like suck it down to the beach This is a craft cocktail sort of situation, in my opinion. And I've just stepped into the world of mezcal. So if you have a recipe that you love, please send it our way. I would love to try it. Today, Trish picked up a, like, gift pack from our favorite liquor store. And it had a bottle of illegal tequila mezcal, a jigger, a like dry pressed lime juice, you add water to it and it turns into fresh lime juice essentially. Yeah. And then it also came with a spicy margarita salt rim. So we did all of that. Oh, and the agave. It came with the agave too. So I followed the recipe that came in the box, but I added my own little twist to it too. So two ounces of the mezcal tequila, one ounce of the lime juice, a half an ounce of the agave. I did use the spicy margarita salt on mine. I don't feel like it's that spicy. It's more like smoky in my opinion. And it matches the flavor of the drink well. But I also added to my drink before I shook it with ice. I added an ounce of mango juice. And to me like that really just took it over the top. It makes it sweet and more like a classic margarita. And less like a whiskey sour. (laughs) Um. I did just look up mezcal versus tequila. Like, what's the difference there? Mezcal is a distilled spirit made from any variety of agave plant. Um, And it's cooked, like, in the ground, which gives it the smoky flavor. And tequila is a distilled spirit made only from blue agave. Okay. So we learned something new. And we made a drink. There we go. I'm happy. But that is my drink for you today. It's just, I don't know what to call this, like a smoky margarita. I guess, yeah. Mezcal margarita. I highly recommend adding the mango. I just really feel like, because it sweetens it, it sweetens it a little bit. But you also know that I love the fruit and tahine craze, the snack, the like 
ice cream cups. I don't care. I love the tahini and the fruit. So to me, this is just another take on that. Like the mezcal just makes it seem like the smoky paprika chili powder is already in the drink and not just on the rim. I love it. Mm -hmm. I'm here for it. If you try this drink, let us know what you think and we'll kick you off to the episode. In 1961, contact lens optometrist Arthur all aged 40, and his family, which consisted of his wife, Jean, who was 38, his children, Brian, who was 14, Terry Joe, 11, and Renee, 7, chartered a boat called Bluebell. He and his family reside in... Green Bay, Wisconsin, and he had long dreamed of taking his wife and children on a week-long family cruise from the Florida Keys to the Bahamas, which, like, he, this was something that kind of was in his mind ever since he sailed during World War II. He was in the service then, so. I can get it. I can see it. So, for years, the family saved, and they were finally able to afford a trip, like, pretty much by summertime, but they didn't set sail till November. So, for them, it was kind of like a perfect escape from that northern winter, because if you've not experienced a northern winter, it is cold. I have not. Thank goodness. (laughs) So, the family planned to spend a week living at sea abroad a chartered yacht in a warm climate, docking at several chosen locations, and possibly extending the sabbatical if they enjoyed themselves. The family arrived in Fort Lauderdale in early November, where they chartered the 60-foot catch, the Bluebell, which was stationed at Bahia Mar Marina, I think is how it's said. And this cost them a whole $515. I wish it was that cheap nowadays. If only. (laughs) So they hired a local yachtsman, Julian Harvey, who was 44 years old, for $100 a day. And... It was perfect for him because he got to bring along his 34-year-old wife, who was a former stewardess and aspiring writer named Mary Dean Harvey. And she basically acted as, like, a cook and, like, a little, like, I guess, maid or whatnot. But either way, he got paid $100 and got to bring his wife along, so... The Duperalt family boarded the Bluebell at around midday on Wednesday, November 8th, 1961. Over the next four days, they traveled to Bimini, I think is how it's said, and Sandy Point. They purchased souvenirs and did things like snorkeling, you know, all the things you try to do when you're a In the Caribbean countries. I want to go. Let's go. 
Although right now I don't know if it's worth it because I heard that there's a giant blob of seaweed heading towards us. Every year around this time. It would take us a few months to pay for the cruise anyways. <laughs> On November 12th, which was a Sunday, the final port before going back to Florida, Arthur and Julian visited the office of British District Commissioner Roderick Pinder. Arthur told the commissioner this has been a once-in-a-lifetime vacation and added that they would be back before Christmas. That night, all back aboard the ship, they ate dinner, and then 11-year-old Terry Jo went below deck to her sleep cabin while everyone else stayed above. At 12.35 p.m. on Monday, November 13th, crew members aboard the oil tanker Gulf Lion observed a man waving frantically from a dinghy drifting in their direction and shouting, Help! I have a dead baby on board. The crew pulled the man aboard and noticed the body of a red-haired um, little girl wearing a life jacket that was inside the dinghy. The man identified himself as Julian Harvey, captain of the Bluebell. He explained that at 8.30 the previous evening, the small vessel had been hit by a sudden strong squall, causing the Bluebell to rapidly keel over and the main mast to snap at a location between the Abaco Islands and Great Stirrup K. He said this slightly injured his wife and Arthur Dubrow and pierced the ship's hull, pretty much causing it to start sinking. He then said that he was separated from his wife and the rest of the passengers. He tried to clear away to them, but then a fire broke out and he was unable to rescue anyone. He was forced to abandon the ship alone on the dinghy and the body of seven-year-old Renee Dubrault had soon floated by and he had retrieved her body and attempted to revive the child. He was unsuccessful but kept her body around out of respect and an autopsy later revealed that she had died of drowning. Harvey was taken to Nassau, which is the capital of the Bahamas, for questioning by authorities. He was calm, but the fact that his dinghy was filled with various survival supplies caused doubts to his claims. I'm basically just a kid because every time you say dinghy, I, I'm getting <laughs> over here in my head. Sorry. But, yeah, I'm like... The hopper in the dinghy. The, uh, I'm like, yeah, it's it's a little odd that, you know, you just happen to, you know, get the little life raft and uh, it just happens to have all these supplies for you to be able to survive. Despite doubts, his story couldn't be disproven, and he was allowed to return to Miami on November 15th to face more questioning by the U.S. Coast Guard. He thought he was the only survivor. 
Well, on November 16th, three days after disaster struck the ship, a child was rescued in the Northwest Providence Channel by a Greek freighter. Captain Theo, second officer, Nicholas, I'm not even going to attempt to say the last name. Um, he observed her floating a, like aboard a two by five foot cork float with approximately one mile from the freighter. So this little raft that she was on was not like that big. And I looked up because I was like, what, what is a cork boat? It basically is something that is supposed to be like you would throw out if someone like fell overboard. So mm-hmm. it's not supposed to be for like long use. Yeah. The like bottom of it is literally like mesh like rope that's like kind of weaved for you to be able to lay on. But like you'll still get wet. So at first they thought that the raft was a small fishing vessel, but they soon realized that it was a it was a little girl with blonde hair that was wearing a white blouse and pink corduroy pants. The crew member that did kind of spot her, and when they got her close, did manage to take a picture of her squinting up at the ship that was saving her as she floated in the raft. And that photo was then eventually posted on the front page of Life magazine and shared around the world. Once she was aboard the ship, crew noted that she was incoherent and barely able to speak. She was given water and orange juice and they sponged the salt from her body with wet towels and they applied Vaseline to her lips. Once she was able to speak, she could barely still speak, but she was able to at least utter that she was 11-year-old Terry Jo Duperall. She had been on the raft for days after the boat had sank down. Um, And she was basically struggling to answer like questions because she, her basically, her body was shutting down. She hadn't eaten, drank, or slept in days. She was also suffering from sunburn and exposure. The Coast Guard was informed of Terry Joe's discovery and her condition, and a rescue helicopter was sent, and she was airlifted to a hospital. It took three hours, but Terry Joe finally arrived at a Miami hospital. She slowly began recovering, but it took over two days to be able to tell authorities what had happened. On November 17th, midway through being questioned, Julian Harvey was informed that Terry Joe had been rescued and about her condition and that was improving. And his response was to exclaim, oh my god, before quickly claiming, like, not quickly claiming, but before quickly and calmly adding, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Oh, Sarah. (laughs) Uh, 
A Lieutenant Ernest Murdoch then informed Harvey that an official investigation into the loss of the Bluebell and her passengers was to be launched that day. So Julian soon asked to be excused from the interrogation for the day, claiming that he was tired and he needed to talk to his wife's family. They granted his request, and then Harvey drove a short distance toward Biscogne, I think is how it's said, Boulevard, where he checked into the Sandman Hotel, or Motel, sorry, the Sandman Motel, under the assumed name of John Monroe, paying cash for a room. He then penned a two-page suicide note before committing suicide by slashing his thigh, ankles, and jugular vein with a razor blade in the motel bathroom. He really wanted to make sure he, he did the job. His body was then found two hours later by a maid. The suicide note, which was addressed to a close friend from his days of military service, was found on a dresser within the room adjacent to his body. This note left no explanations or apologies for his actions, but simply ended with the words, I got too tired and nervous. I can't stand it any longer. The note also asked for them to take care of his 14-year-old son, Lance, and that he wished to be buried at sea. By November 20th, Terry Joe had gained enough strength to talk with investigators and gave her statement about what had happened to the Bluebell. According to Terry Joe, late on the night of November 12th, the Bluebell began its return to Fort Lauderdale at 9 p.m. or about that time. She went to sleep in the cabin, leaving everyone else above on deck. Later that evening, she was awoken by sounds of her brother screaming and calling for his father, and heavy footfalls, which she then decided she was going to go investigate. When she got on deck, she saw the bodies of her mother and brother in the main cabin. When she walked farther onto the deck, she saw Harvey with a bucket. He struck her and shoved her below deck and shouted, get back down there. She returned to her cabin to later notice oil and water began to gush onto the floor of her cabin approximately 15 minutes after like this whole ordeal. Harvey then walked into her cabin with a rifle in his right hand. They made eye contact, only he did nothing. He just kind of looked at her shut the door, and returned back to the top deck. And so she just kind of sat there on her bed for a while, and then she started hearing what sounded like hammering sounds. And then once she noticed, like, the water just continually to rise, she went up on top, like, to the deck, and that's when she saw Harvey standing on the deck and with the vessel's dinghy floating on the port side. And he asked, like, he pretty much asked her, is the dinghy loose? To which she replied, I don't know. 
I mean, <laughs> isn't that what you're supposed to do, bud? This is your getaway. Some people just shouldn't be in charge. Yeah. He then ordered her to hold a rope attached to the dinghy while he retrieved something. But by the time he returned, she had lost hold of the rope. And he then dove into the water and swam after the dinghy, boarding it and leaving her on the sinking vessel. Terry Joe then spotted the cork float and that was tied to the deck. And she got in and had to rush to untie it before it went under with the ship. For three days, she drifted on the ocean without food, water, or shelter. She had to sit upright to avoid falling into the ocean or being eaten by aquatic life. And in an interview, she said that these fish called parrotfish had started to like ascend on her and pick at her. To the point that, like, her feet were bleeding. I was like, mm-mm. Nope. And I know one of the crew members from the boat that ended up rescuing her said that it had gotten to the point that, I guess, sharks had started to, like, sense her, like, presence and probably her blood in the water that they were starting to circle nearby. So... In a way, she's kind of lucky she got saved because if not, she would have become shark food. Oh, for sure. Like, hell no. <laughs> so, probably one of the most heartbreaking things is, is like, when she was first got on, like, the cork float that she got on, she stayed quiet for, like, that whole night and most of the next day because she was afraid that Harvey was going to come find her and finish her off. And then she just stayed quiet because she realized nobody was going to see her. Everybody was too far away. And like any boats or anything she saw were too far away. So why would she bother trying to yell after them? Mm -hmm. She did at one point... Um, on November 14th, see a small red plane circling overhead. And this is believed to have been like um, a plane from like the Coast Guard trying to go where Harvey had claimed the boat had been. Trying to look and see if they could see the boat, see if they saw any survivors and whatnot. And she did see this plane circling overhead and she thought finally she was going to be rescued but the thing is the life raft was white and she was also wearing a white shirt and so she blended in with the wave caps she said that the plane came so close to her that she was sure that if she reached up she could actually touch the plane but she still remained unseen she even took her blouse off to wave it and scream but it did nothing that's so sad. Right? I think I would give up at that point. For four days, she floated and just waited for death to come. And that seemed to be what was going to happen until that Greek ship finally spotted her. Terry Joe was adamant that the mast of the Bluebell was intact and that there had been no fire aboard the vessel and that the sea was calm throughout the entire 
like crews and especially the night of the events prior mm-hmm. to the sinking. Uh, she was told that Julian Harvey had been picked up three days prior to her rescue and that he had the body of her sister on board and that the rest of her family, along with Harvey's wife, had been lost at sea. So with all this happening, obviously, uh, Julian Harvey's testimony was proved to be false And then the fact that he suddenly decided to off himself. Doesn't make you look too good. Yeah. It basically led them to do an investigation into Harvey. And what they found was uh, pretty interesting. So this inquiry revealed that Harvey was a decorated world... World War II veteran and Korean War pilot. He had difficulty holding a job for any length of time. He had serious financial problems. And basically him and his wife had gotten married in July of 1961. But a few months prior to that happening, he took out a double life insurance policy on her. Hmm. So, prior to his journey with the Dubrovs, um, he had taken another group on the same vessel for $300 a month, and this is believed to be where he came up with the plan to kill his wife. The conclusion of the inquiry was that Harvey had planned to kill his wife to collect on her $20,000 double amenity insurance policy, which basically would yield double the insured sum if she died accidentally. It's believed that Arthur had witnessed either the murder or the disposal of her body, so he was killed. And then Harvey killed Jean, Brian, and Renee. Either because they too had witnessed the murder of either the wife or their husband or father. And, or he just didn't want to take the liability of them saying something. Um, it's unknown why he spared Terry Joe. But it's believed that he thought that she would just sink with the ship because, in his mind, he took the only way, like, off. off the ship, yeah. <laughs> and basically, to further, like, support his claims that it was an accident and that it was just so, like, rush, like, he couldn't do anything, that's why he apparently had Renee's body with him to further corroborate his story and basically since he committed suicide he couldn't be prosecuted for the crimes but it was stated that if he hadn't had committed suicide that he would have been tried and obviously probably found guilty 
So his crimes didn't stop at all, like this insurance fraud and stuff. He he also had other wives. Like his wife was his fifth wife, <laughs> so he he he'd been around a little bit. His second wife and her mother had been killed in a car accident that he had been driving. Their um, 1946 Plymouth Deluxe, when it plunged off a bridge at high speed into a bayou on a rainy night in which he had swum to safety, leaving his wife, Joanne, and her mother, Myrtle Boylan, to drown. So again, with this drowning thing, apparently that's his, like, catch-all. <laughs> He's like, oh, they, they drowned accidentally. Oh, it was terrible. Give me my money. He had also sunk two other ships, resulting in large insurance settlements, which he benefited from. Like, one, he was taking some ship out and whatnot and the crew was like hey you gotta steer clear of this there's like some wreckage up here and you gotta like navigate around there or else it's gonna you know take out the bottom and we're gonna sink and despite initially trying to dodge it he just suddenly started you know easing his way back towards it and guess what he hit it Man, I forget what happened with the other one. But I was just like, you would think a background check or something would have been done. I mean, I know this was the 60s. I was but... about to say that <coughs> background checks did not really become a thing until I really feel the 2000s, honestly. Yeah. It was just, I was just like, Jesus. So yeah, basically he had made his money off of like insurance claims and stuff, which is shitty. <laughs> Sounds like the 60s. Yep. Yeah. So Terry Joe, obviously now being an orphan, she returned to Green Bay to live with her father's sister, grandmother, and three cousins. She refused to get rid of her blouse and pants that she had been wearing and also changed her name from Terry Joe, which was spelled T-E-R-R-Y, then J-O, to instead, the way it still was pronounced when I looked, it's still Terry, but it's T-E-R-E. But she basically did that so that I mean, she... you would respond if somebody called out your name, but if somebody went to go Google you, not that Google was a thing in the 60s. Right. <laughs> but. But she apparently did it to basically give herself some anonymity and not be seen as a victim. Because, yeah, I think her picture and name was, there was splashed everywhere. She was literally known as the Sea Orphan. So, this was the 1960s, so psychological coping strategies were basically non-existent. She was given no therapist to speak to and no coping strategy whatsoever. It took her over 20 years before she finally spoke publicly about 
her loss and like the events of that night. She later went on to get married and had three children. And despite everything, you would think she would never want to be near like water again. No, she went out of her way to make sure that she lived and worked by the ocean. I mean, some people run from their fears and some people face their fears. Yeah. I am both at the same time. (laughs) She has since retired and lives in Wisconsin. In 2010, Terry Jo Duperall Fassbender released her memoir, Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean. And it was co-authored by psychologist and survival expert Richard Logan. And the book details her family's final cruise, Harvey's murder of her family and his wife, and the three and a half days that she spent drifting upon the cork float prior to her rescue, and then her life in the years since. I, I've not looked into that book, but if you want to like read and kind of get stuff from her point of view, it might be a good one to look into. I'll make sure I put it in like show notes or something for you. But this story I originally saw on TikTok and I was like, I was going to send it to Sloan and be like, here's a ruining paradise for you. And then I was like, yeah, but it's not a place. It's more just like a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, eh, I'll do it. And then be like, if you like these types of stories, you can listen to Sloan <laughs> tell you about, you know, all these great places, and you know, maybe why you shouldn't go <laughs> Or if you like to tempt fate, go there. There you go. <laughs> but that is the story of the Duperalt family. Like I said, it was it was one that I was like I was on TikTok and they're like, um, it showed the picture of Terry Joe floating in the ocean, looking up at the her rescuers, and they went into the story and that, and I was just like, well, this is what you get for being so trusting in the 60s. This is why a lot of these, like, murders and that that you see that happened around that time, you're like, see, nowadays that wouldn't, like, happen because man, you can't just, like, suddenly go to the store like on your bike without anybody like noticing (laughs) and then disappear. I mean I know that we say a lot these days that you know we would never x y and z but also you have to remember that at that point like my parents were born in the 60s and it was very much it was a a different time. Yes it was a different time. It was more community driven. Your neighbors were there to help you. I know my mom's side of the family was definitely, like, they would lock their doors and everything. But my dad's side of the family, like, rarely ever locked their doors. Even whenever I got, whenever I was born, like, they would, it wasn't until I got older and I was living with them that they started locking their doors because they moved to a different part of town and all these other things. But the 60s were a much different time. So it's easy for us to sit here right now and say, that was dumb. You should never trust a a stranger like that. But at that point in time, like, I mean, we weren't even in the hippie movement yet. So, like, this is prior to the hippie movement where they're about to really start (laughs) hopping into vans (laughs) and going for rides and shit. 
And that's the point where we... Your boy Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, was... That's the point. Was his prime. <laughs> that's the point when we as, an, as a society were like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be so trusting of strangers. <laughs> yeah. But in the 60s... Yeah, like I said, it was definitely a different time. But I'm just like, damn, you save up to to get your family to go on this like charter for a week and that and then yeah next thing you know you you got some psycho that is literally trying to get insurance fraud for his wife and then it's like oh shit you saw yep. bye <laughs> yep <I'm> like <laughs> be my luck and be like that's why we don't go anywhere that's why i don't leave the house <laughs> Other than for Mexican and margaritas. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, without further ado, we'll kick you off to the last call. Welcome back to another Last Call with Sloan. It's been a while since we did a Florida man. So uh, Florida man. I found the top Florida man stories of 2022 for us. One, Florida man found with drugs after getting trapped in a porta potty. <laughs> A Florida man found stuck inside a porta potty was arrested on drug charges after Collier County deputies found him screaming for help. <laughs> James Goose was 34 and found by a deputy with a foot sticking out of the bottom of a porta potty. The station reported, the news station reported when the deputy opened, opened the bathroom door, they found a powdery substance in a bag that later tested positive for fentanyl along with syringe. <sighs> with a syringe. Two, after police chasement, in an early appearance of Florida woman on the list, Janaya Shamiracle Douglas was able to cross something off her bucket list in May and now has a mugshot to prove it. According to deputies, she was driving in Monroe County around 7.45 a.m. that day when a deputy tried to pull her over, but Douglas continued driving. She eventually stopped and was taken into custody, telling authorities that getting arrested had been on her bucket list since high school. Nice. Yes. Number three, a new poor Richie man was arrested on a felony charge after authorities said he threw a hot dog at a police officer in July. <laughs> no. Or be he, I look like the 4th of July. <laughs> Makes me want a hot dog real bad. <laughs> Arrest documents say Jason Stoll, 47, was being warned of violating a city ordinance by an officer. Officers said he ignored the warning and continued to sell hot dogs in a road after his street closure permit ended. Stoll was asked to put the hot dogs down, but continued his attempts to sell it before becoming upset and intentionally throwing the hot dog at the officer. He was charged with battery on a law enforcement officer and resisting an officer without violence. Oh my god. I mean, I don't that's know. considered battery. I don't know. That was pretty violent. That's considered battery. I feel like service industry just sees it every day. Amen. Amen. Four. A Florida man is accused of driving a stolen vehicle to a Space Force base in Brevard County in what he called a mission from the President of the United States. Oh, God. Corey Johnson, 29, stole a truck from Riviera Beach and drove to Patrick Space Force Base near the Kennedy Space Center. When Johnson tried to get on the base, he claimed the president told him in his mind that he needed to take the vehicle and warn government officials that there were U.S. aliens fighting Chinese dragons. Okay, what drugs are you on, dude? 
Number five, body camera video of a woman who put on a performance for Pinellas County deputies during a field sobriety test was released in August. Amy Harrington, 38, was charged with driving under the influence with property damage and refusal to submit to testing in April after rear-ending a vehicle about a mile from her home. Deputies said she showed signs of impairment and performed multiple ballet and Irish folk dance moves <laughs> during the sobriety test. Six. A Florida man was arrested in October when police said he attacked a woman with a machete wearing nothing but a cowboy hat. The arrest report from the Miami-Dade police said Rob, said Roberto Hercules, 45, attacked the woman while she was riding a bicycle. Police said he asked her for a crack pipe, but when she said she didn't have it, he chased her with the machete. Oh, God. All right, Florida. Seven. A Florida woman was arrested after speeding through a checkpoint in October in Lee County, according to deputies. Deputies said Shelby Peters, 24, sped through the checkpoint and did not stop. According to authorities, Peters finally stopped, but while the deputy called for backup, he saw her take a selfie before driving off again when the deputy exited his vehicle. <laughs> Number eight. A man who first went viral on social media for his wide neck and his mugshot. <laughs> I remember him. Yes. Was arrested again in November for his aggravated stalking and another for withholding support for a child or spouse, according to a Scambia County Jail website in the initial report. Oh, God. So that's right across the bay from us. Yep. Right across. And those are the best Florida stories, Florida man stories from last year, 2022. Nice. I do have a small update with the whole Murdoch thing. Okay. It's not a lot. It's just... <laughs> so... If you remember, I was talking about Buster claiming, like, you know, people are following him and whatnot. Well, now... Good old Buster is being looked at for the possible murder of a classmate. <laughs> and he's denying he had anything to do with it. But it is uh, something that has been brought up and could very possibly be a, just another downfall for the Murdoch family. Not any of the Murdoch's doing anything illegal. Right? I'm like, man, they really said... All right, we got rid of, of Alex. So now, you know, ain't nobody going to stand up for this family. Let's start digging into everything. I'm like, shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't wait to see what else happens. Yeah. Yep. I'm sure that this is the last update that we gave is far from the end of it. Like, I wish that it would be, but <laughs> it is what it is. But I did want to let you know. I did see that. And it's something that I keep kind of like checking to see if anything's coming up. About, but they're still in the investigation period of it. So they got to wave through like a whole lot of bullshit. Because this is from years ago. But it's just. It was just funny. Because I was like. Oh not. Not Buster. Right. Not Mr. I have no emotions. <laughs> Anyways. That is everything we have for you today. 
We hope that you enjoyed it. You can find us on our socials. We have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. They're all Tequila She Wrote. You can also email us at tequilasherote at gmail.com. And I am begging you, if you have recipes for mezcal tequilas, we want them. We need them. I'm also thinking that that tequila with my uh, my spicy whiskey, the, what what was it? Um, Not the whiskey. Spicy the... mango. Oh, the mango habanero? Yes, that one. I think those two would pair well together. And Maybe. make a good, like, I don't know. I've got to play around with it. We got a lot of mezcal tequila to go through. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We'll keep you updated. I'll, I'll look up some things, see what sounds good. But yes, if you have any case or drink recipes or even last calls, send them our way. We also have our Patreon set up for as little as two dollars a month. You get ad-free episodes, and then you can pay a little more. You get like some bonus content. We are a little behind on there, but we are getting slowly caught up. It's been a rough couple of weeks here, <laughs> but it's been a rough couple of years. I was I was like, it's been in this seat. It's been so some some things after another, but we're slowly getting there. It'll 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 all come together one day. <laughs> if you would like to catch us there and check it out, like I said. There's a bunch, there's a different things depending on what you might want or like, um, but find us at patreon.com backslash, patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote, or you can go to our link tree, click on the little Patreon thing, it should take you directly there. But thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express, toot toot, beep beep.